Okay, so I'm sat here in Victoria Park, London, at the end of a very, very long and amazing Wednesday. And I'm looking at a screen. I'm looking at my friend Helena, who is in California at the beginning of a very beautiful Wednesday. How are you? I'm good. It's good to see you. And you. It's been a long, long time. I met Helena, I'm going to say nine years ago. It might be 10. I have no idea. When I was involved in the Do Lectures, Helena was doing the photography for Do USA, the second Do USA. And I was on the gate. I was signing people in. And um, Helena arrived and with the most amazingly, uh, what's the word? What's the word I'm looking for? She bought showbiz to Hopland. You bought cool and you bought chic. You bought chic to Hopland and then proceeded to take the most amazing photographs. And I feel privileged that I got to know you and I got to know Kerry, actually, and a couple of other people during that time. And what no one will know, because I've never told anybody really, unless they've asked, is I was there with Daisy, my daughter. We had no money at the time, and we were wanting to stay in San Francisco for a couple of days afterwards. And Helena just turned around and went, well, do you want to stay in my apartment? And you let us stay in your apartment for two or three nights. Was it Union Square? I can't remember where. Was it Union Square? Right in the center of downtown. It was literally overlooking the square. It had the most beautiful arched window that Daisy just sat in um, writing poetry so um, number one it's so lovely to see you number two thank you so much for that you were um, a godsend tell people before we start who are you what do you do and why should the world listen great question mark I would say I'm just a girl on a journey that's the best way I can describe what I do I was raised in the rural south I ended up moving to San Francisco in 2009 to work on the internet with no connections no money And I've ended up with the most extraordinary winding career that spanned working for early stage startups. Then I ended up in the photography production business, which is when I met you. And then I took a wild turn and started an alcohol brand that ended up breaking a lot of barriers and impacting the industry in a lot of ways. And now I'm moving on to my next chapter. So I would say I can speak a lot about change and I can speak a lot about the chapters of life and how to navigate from one to the other. Amazing. You've whetted everybody's appetite with that introduction. Thank you. Now, I always ask the same three questions to start these conversations. I ask, what did your childhood taste like? What did it smell of? And what did it sound like? So take me back to your childhood, the smell, the sound and the taste. Mm. So... I would split my childhood into two chapters. I had my first chapter, which was in Indianapolis, where I was born. And that was a wonderful place to be a little kid. We had a children's museum that was extraordinary. We had a zoo that was extraordinary, at least as a kid. You know, that's when I went. Uh, We had Disney on ice. We had all this really cool metropolitan stuff that made for a really exciting sensory experience as a kid. When I was six... I moved to New Bern, North Carolina. Most people don't know where that is. It's a tiny town by the coast. All those cultural experiences were not there. And I, in many ways, had to start over where our entertainment was being sent out into the yard and told to spend the day there. So I got used to the smells of dirt and the river and wildlife and BB guns and, you know, all these kind of small town Southern things that I hadn't had not been acquainted with until I was forced to become acquainted with it. 
So the smell of dirt, right? That's um, I love the smell of dirt. But it sounds like you maybe didn't love the smell of dirt. You became acquainted with these things that you weren't acquainted with until you were forced to do it. Was there any frustration, any anger is too strong a word because you're a kid, right? But was were you unhappy about this shift or did you welcome it? I had to make the most of what I had, right? I mean, I was just given the news of like, this is it, right? You got to figure out what to do with it. And I would say that's been a theme that I've worked with across my life. It was also the beginning of my life being less of a stable and predictable one and, and one of quite a bit of change. My parents divorced almost as soon as we moved there. So my life became very different very quickly. And I would say that I never got used to anything being the same. I got used to things being change. And I think that has ultimately served me. Yeah, no, absolutely. The, the things that we endure as a kid help us grow as we get older. I love that. So I've got the smell of dirt. What about the tastes of your childhood? What was the taste of your childhood? So I grew up in a food desert. I didn't know what organic food was until I was an adult. I grew up eating a lot of the classic American processed foods, you know, lots of Hot Pockets and DiGiorno pizzas and tuna helper felt very fancy, you know, very sophisticated. But at the same time, I was raised by a Norwegian immigrant mom. So I had a little bit of diversity that I was really lucky to have. And other kids never got to eat anything like that. And that's like, eating fish eggs out of a toothpaste looking tube. Um, it's really interesting cheeses, really beautiful breads. I got to go visit Norway sometimes as a kid. And that kind of um, taught me that where I was wasn't how it is everywhere. And that was a really good thing to know as well. That's amazing. Norwegian food. I mean, Norway is such a beautiful, beautiful country. And it is a gift having a parent that is from somewhere else. It's definitely a gift. You end up with with the best of both cultures, hopefully. And then the sounds, the sounds of your childhood. What, what did your childhood sound like? I miss them, actually. I will say there, there is a split, right? In, in Indianapolis, I recall the sounds of the city. My dad had an office downtown and I would go and, you know, he'd work late on some nights and I'd go and just hang out in his office and I'd lay on the floor and just listen to the sounds of the traffic in the center of the city where his office was. And I think that's honestly what drew me to have an apartment like the one you stayed with as an adult. I wanted to find that again. <laughs> and then when I moved to rural North Carolina, those sounds didn't exist. I ached for them. I missed them. I think that's what ultimately drew me back to urban areas in the city uh, as an adult. But at the same time now, I miss the sounds of the small town South. I miss crickets and toads and you know the sounds of all the little critters at night during the summer when you sit on your porch. There are those, you know, little details that you really, really appreciate and, and long for after you've left where you're from. I can hear the cicadas. I can hear them. Where were your grandparents in relation to those two places that you grew up? So I never met either of my grandfathers. They were kind of just gone out of the family's lives by the time I was born. But my mom's mom lived in Norway and she was a tough as nails Scandinavian woman who did not know English, but we, you know, communicated through other ways. And I got to see her every few years. And my dad's mom was, they're all past at this point, but she was another tough lady who grew up really poor in the rural South and, you know, had a lot of baggage, but we also found ways to show each other love. How did you show each other love? What did you do? 
You know, I actually, I spend a lot of time thinking about this because I've been on a pretty tremendous healing journey the last few years, getting to know my own life and my wiring and the things I was taught and how it impacted how I view the world. And I had some really interesting teachers about love. In Norway, I don't want to generalize, but this was my experience being raised by Norwegians. You can be a little colder in your presentation. And, you know, at least with the way I was raised specifically, love was implied by presence. Like if I'm here, it's because I love you. And that is how I interpreted it. Anything on top of that, I think at the time I decided wasn't necessary because just being present was enough. Though today I would say I'm, I'm learning what other modalities of love look like because it wasn't necessarily said in my house. It wasn't a house full of hugs. It wasn't a house full of other demonstrations of that. I also think there is a bit of a generational experience of that, that I'm learning with a lot of parents my age with young kids who are examining how they were loved as a child um, and deciding whether or not they want to love their children the same way. That's my very long-winded answer of saying I was taught some things and I'm relearning right now. It's a great answer and the the way we define love and care and the way that we as parents behave. And now I'm a granddad, right? The way that we behave to our grandkids, those uh, models of love have changed hugely. How old are your parents? What age are they roughly? So my mom's 65 and my dad passed when he was 57, which was 16 years ago. So he would have been older than that now. He'd have been 73. Right. So when just to put that into context, your dad was the children of people who probably fought in the war, who probably touched by the war. And your mum, parents in Norway, Norway had a difficult war, right? It was really difficult. She's a bit younger, but your grandparents, probably lovely as they were to you, really struggled to parent. They were very locked down, very closed. And and it takes a couple of generations to untie the, the knot. And we're the same. Right? I'm, a lot, I'm a lot older than you, right? But, but But we're the same. Our parents are not a million miles away in years. And you undo the harm they did. You probably do loads more harm without realizing it for your own kids. But all we can do is what we feel right doing. I love that. I really love that. And I love those definitions. And I love that conversation around what love is. Helena, do you love who you are? Today, yes. But my God, it was a journey to get there. I think in the same way that I had very specific ideas of what love looked like and what love should be and what I needed and didn't need just to make peace with my upbringing. I think that I've been on this journey of discovering how that translates into self-love or not, Mm. right? I have had some really brutal realizations with myself, uh, and I, I don't think this is unique, of realizing, wow, there are so many ways in which I am, I've been brutally hard on myself, unnecessarily, and regularly, you know, convinced myself that I'm not enough, and I need to do more, and I need to be more. And in some ways, that wiring is what's driven me to where I am. So in some ways, I can think it, right. But at some point, you have to realize there's a bell curve here, like, more isn't better of poison. Sometimes, you know, I was watching a a children's show with my kid yesterday and it was about animals and it was about venom and how too much can kill you obviously but a little bit a tiny 
bit of venom can be good for you. It can make you stronger. And it just felt very metaphorical for this moment of, you know, a little bit of self-inflicted hardship can be good. It can drive you towards your life purpose, whatever that is. But at some point you have to ask whether or not you're bordering on too much poison. I know. I hear you. That's really interesting, isn't it? It's kind of inoculation argument. I like that enormously. So you've got these two different memories of childhood. You've not memories. You've got these two different situations for childhood and and the smells and and you semi-feral in, in the wilderness and then this urban memory of of laying on dad's office floor, Indianapolis, rattling all the way around you. <laughs> when you grew through school, what was your passion? What was what did you love doing as you grew? I would not say that I had passions. I was in survival mode for most of childhood, you know, for for a variety of reasons. But I would say my childhood was more defined by just feeling different and feeling out of place. That that was part of coming from a big city to a tiny little town. It was part being raised by an immigrant. So I wasn't like deeply enmeshed in Southern culture, which is good, I think, in a lot of ways. So I was always just kind of feeling different, feeling alone, feeling older than I was. And so I think that sense of difference informed a lot of the ways I went through my childhood. In some ways, I leaned into it. Like I picked up hobbies that were not considered normal. You know, I ended up being a hyper competitive classical pianist and like traveled around and did competitions and was one of the top amateurs in the country. And I don't think I would have done that if I didn't feel so lonely, right? You have to practice piano for hours a day to get that good. And so that's what I did. And it was a really good meditative practice looking back. It was a really good way to deal with my crippling anxiety and my ADD and OCD, things that you know I didn't know I had at the time. It was good medicine and it was good for me to have some sort of purpose other than just you know, wandering through my childhood. Yeah, I, I get that. And I and I I like the way you talk about neurodiversity. It's interesting, isn't it, as we get to a position where we can examine those things and we can see the joy and the ways of thinking they brought and how effective they were in making us feel special, different, and sometimes lonely. Really interesting. Those um I've just found out I've got ADHD and um literally everybody I know mm-hmm. went and you didn't know? <laughs> I didn't know. But obviously, looking back, you think, oh, of course, of course. We're always the last to find out things about ourselves. Everyone always knows first. That's so very true. So very true. You went to university? Did you, after high school, where did you go? So I went to a state school in North Carolina called NC State. I think that's the only school I applied to, honestly. I was pretty lost. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew that I was kind of a creative type of person. But again, I went to public school in the rural South. So the school counselor, when they hear you're creative, they're like, I don't really know what that means. But they're also like, oh, well, you could be an art teacher. That's it. I didn't know you could do any of the things I ended up doing as a career. But I chose NC State because they had a design school. Yeah. And so I thought, oh, maybe if I just go in that direction, I might magically end up in it or something. So I I didn't choose a major. I quickly learned you can't just magically get into design school. You need a portfolio. So I ended up not doing that. And I chose communications as a degree because it felt generalist enough that it wouldn't pigeonhole me, right? I knew that there was an engineering track. I knew there were these kind of specific tracks and I didn't want to pick a track. 
So I chose a degree that kind of afforded me the flexibility of the unknown. And I have to say, it's one of the best choices I've ever made. That communications degree has served me so well. And it certainly did not put me down a track. It allowed me to do many, many things. I love that. I've just had just recorded a podcast earlier where I was the subject. And I talked about my inability to choose whether I was going to do a science, an art, or a humanity at university. And I ended up doing the humanity and science together, and um, which involved me then redesigning streets. So I love the specialist generalist. I love the width. And that, and you've said the same thing. That's, that's amazing. So you got your communications degree. Where did you go to university? North Carolina State University, home of the Wolfpack. Very cool place now, right? Very, very cool. Holly Murchison lives there, I think, isn't she? She's in, she's in North Carolina, if I remember rightly. You yeah. Holly. So after university, what did you do? What, what, what did you decide was your next step and why? Well, the next steps came earlier than I thought. I figured I would have a conventional college experience. I joined a sorority. I like did all the things that I thought you're supposed to do when you go to college to be like a good growing child into adulthood. But my at the end of my freshman year, I ended up losing my dad and my stepdad at around the same time. And they were my financial, you know, security at the time. Uh, my mom made $11 an hour as a school nurse. And so all of a sudden I went from not having to worry about money, which, you know, I don't think is uncommon for a freshman in college to, oh, it's now up to me to figure out how to pay for school and pay for my life. And so I ended up getting a job in a bar or restaurant nightclub yeah. at 18 years old. And I'm not quite sure why I chose it, but I had worked in restaurants in high school. So I just figured I like restaurants. Let's go that direction. And that was the beginning of this new path. I mean, I'll tell you, I barely went to school from that point forward. I did just enough to graduate because I was working till four in the morning, several nights a week. And I was super depressed from losing two father figures at once. So that was the cards I was dealt. I would say it was a huge change in direction that I didn't anticipate, but it was in many ways a blessing because I certainly don't think I'd be happy uh, being a more conventional <laughs> sorority track woman, like what I thought I was supposed to do. Um, this forced me kind of into my purpose. So through waiting tables and you know serving drinks, I got to know the adult culture of Raleigh. I met a ton of people. I got involved in the music scene kind of on accident because the service industry and the music scene are really intertwined. By that. Yeah. I started touring with bands as a photographer on my breaks. That's how I, you know, got a little bit more serious about this old photography hobby that I'd had since I was a small child. It put me in all these different directions that I never would have sought if I wasn't seeking them out of kind of necessity. And that allowed me to see the country and understand that there's so much more out there for me if I want to go try my hand at it. And it ultimately led me to moving to the West Coast, basically the minute I got out of college. And did you finish your degree? Did you Were you able to support yourself? through? That's amazing. Yeah, barely. <laughs> well, I mean, genuinely, it's not cheap to go to university in America. It's not cheap to go to university here anymore. When you describe yourself in your freshman year as going through the sorority when looking at the kind of trying to do the things that you thought you should do I can't see you doing those things at all I, I like that that feels like not you the new the you that I know that feels like not you 
Yeah. I mean, I'm still shedding that conditioning over the last even couple of years. I mean, this is a broader theme of my life of taking a look around and being like, holy shit, I built a life that I thought I was supposed to without even stopping to ask whether or not it's the life that I wanted or whether or not I'm portraying myself in the way that I want or like, do I even know who I am? I mean, it was really a disorienting process and a relatively recent process to be like, how much of me as I present to the world is presenting because I think that's what will make people like me the most or make me the most palatable or make me the best CEO or whatever that track was that I'm on at the time or the best wife or like, do I even want to be a wife? You know, all these questions that ended up rearing its head at me. Yeah. I mean, looking back, like there are so many moments where life took me from a conventional path and I'm grateful for it now. But at the time it was quite painful because it's painful to be different. And also, you know, we construct a version of ourselves. We construct a paper doll of ourselves based on the reflection that we think other people want to see. And there's that great Velvet Underground and Nico song, I'll Be Your Mirror, Reflect What You Are. Sometimes we just need a better mirror. And it's not that there's anything broken in us. It's just that we've been been aiming in that direction. That's the person we think we should be. And sometimes it takes a derailing and sad as it is to lose two father figures within a short space of time. Maybe the derailing produced a a truer you. I know you'd rather have your dad. I know that. And so, I mean, that's how I'm. So I, I was introduced to you as this really cool Californian band photographer. That's like what I bring in the glamour. And that's how I was introduced to you. And you fulfilled all of that. Quite clearly, that's what you were. Did you feel that you were wearing the right skin at that point? Or did you feel there was still more to be? What's so amazing about that is hearing your reflections of meeting me, your impressions of me. At that event where you were, you know, we were both at this conference for multiple days. I was so overwhelmed with anxiety at that event. And I was all the time at every event that I'd go to that I'm pretty sure I hid from all of you for at least 50% of that event. When I would go out and do things, I would do it because I knew how important it was for my career, or at least that's what I was telling myself, right? Everything was for my career, everything that I did, because I was on this wheel of self-sufficiency and no one else is going to take care of me. So I've got to constantly be working to do it myself. But at the same time, I had all of this really extreme social anxiety that I, I didn't quite know where it came from or why it was there, but it was difficult to manage. So, you know, I went there and I, I did my job and I met some amazing people like you and I had really good conversations. But with all of those events, I would leave and I would take a deep breath and be like, thank God I survived that. Not because it wasn't amazing, but because I had this just strange pervasive horror of being out in the world and exposed. I've certainly done some work to figure out where all of this comes from. So to answer your question, even looking back, I was very much in my element. I was doing my dream job. I was doing what I wanted, you know, traveling the world, doing photo campaigns for people, um, really extraordinary work and living out my dreams. But I was still crippled with fear, anxiety, self-loathing, not feeling like 
I was doing enough. It was rough. And I continued down that track of doing more and more and achieving more and more success with that wiring still chasing me until I confronted it quite recently. It's amazing. I mean, number one, I would never have known, right? You just looked uber sophisticated, uber successful. Like if I've always said a photographer's key skill is not being seen. You don't want to be front and center. You want everybody else to move normally around you. My friend, Jim Marsden, who is an amazing photographer, you'll meet him when you go to do next year. His key skill is invisibility. He only uses film. It's these wonderful. And, and I just saw that in you. I just thought, she's amazing. She's kind of like hiding between the cracks and she's taking the photos and, and the photos were brilliant, right? Your work was, was next level. There's something really reassuring and yet marginally heartbreaking about the fact that you felt so uncomfortable. I feel like I should have helped you more. I feel like I should have been the one that went, Hey, Helena, let me help you. But I didn't know there was a problem. So you hid it really well. Well, thank you. I wouldn't call it a problem necessarily. It was more just like, this is what I deal with on a day-to-day basis. And with anybody, everybody has their light and their shadow, right? Everybody has the things that they think are great and the things that are chasing them. And you said it yourself, photography is this amazing thing where that wiring actually helped me do my job, right? Like that wiring of of wanting to be in the background and wanting to be kind of, uh, you know, hiding in the shadows a bit actually made me really good at that career. If I were someone who needed to be front and center, I couldn't be a photographer. I'd have to be in front of the camera. So it was a career that actually allowed me to wield those shadow elements of myself in a way that made me better at my job. Yeah, I see that. Now I can see that. Were you looking for you through the lens? Were you looking for who you were? I'll tell you why I've been so attracted to photography since I was a tiny child. It is a way to curate what you remember. And it allowed me to feel like I had some control over life and how I keep it. Because I'm a person who has historically very much lived in the past and the future. I've always been bad at living in the present. Again, that's, I think, why being a photographer was so great. It gave me something to do in the present instead of be there. And so instead of being present, you can actively curate the past that you will eventually live through. So I would capture beautiful moments, beautiful people, these incredible adventures that I'd go on. I would capture them instead of just experiencing them and then live through those moments later when I needed to believe that my life was perfect. Um, It was a good coping mechanism. I'm getting very existential here, but that's absolutely what informed my work. Through all that time, I mean, you you looked incredibly successful, right? You know, in-demand photographer, cool gig, really beautiful, living in the center of of San Francisco, it, you know, it, you were something to behold, right? It, people were in awe of you. And and yet to find that there was this uncertainty still, I, I think gives hope, Helena. I do think it gives hope. What happened next? I don't mean what happened straight after the do lectures. I mean, what happened, uh, what brought photography to a pause? Yeah, you know, and I'll pause for a moment on what you just said, which is I am now realizing that 
it is a gift to others to share how you can have discontent when you are perceived as quite successful. I even have thought that there's going to be a moment when it goes away, when those feelings go away. Oh, if I get this successful, my problems or my anxieties or whatever will go away. I always believed that. And I've just recently become very comfortable with the idea of like yearning, wanting, desiring. It's part of the human condition. It doesn't go away. And so me even sharing my experiences, it doesn't mean that I'm ungrateful. It doesn't mean that I'm like, I failed to see the good that I had. I think it's really beneficial for all of us to know that it's just both. It's that you can so greatly appreciate how beautiful your life can be and how fortunate you can be and what you have. And also know, really know that the yearning never goes away. When I finally came to terms with that, I've become so much more at peace with my life and my path than I ever have been. And it actually helped a lot of that underlying anxiety go away because I'm not chasing this thing that doesn't exist anymore. So that's just a little segue there. I love that. So after photography, and I wouldn't even call it after photography, I was kind of living my dream. I was traveling the world. I was shooting for Facebook and Google and Twitter and Uber and all of my dream companies and living this life. I ended up meeting a boy and moving to wine country and and getting married. And he worked in alcohol. And I was never anticipating starting a brand in alcohol, but I'd worked in it, right? I'd served drinks. I'd been a bartender. I knew alcohol as a consumer and a server. And so I got to know the business side of the industry kind of through osmosis. And the opportunity just presented itself to me. I started learning about the industry, seeing how totally backwards it is in America, like prohibition era laws. It's really a dinosaur of an industry. It's kind of owned by the mafia. It's not really an exaggeration. And it it seemed ripe for disruption. Mm-hmm. And the best way I can make this a, a short story is I started doing research. I saw a huge gap in the market. I saw that millennials' tastes were changing, but the industry was doing nothing about it. I figured out that this low ABV format, a very specific format of alcohol that I thought might be the future is the one kind of liquor you can sell legally on the internet in America. And I set out to build the first D2C liquor brand ever. So it wasn't an after photography or I'm leaving photography for this. It was more like, I just knew this was a big idea. And I really wanted to see this industry change because I saw how disenfranchised my husband at the time and his friends were as indie makers. I just got really inspired by what I was seeing and wanted to throw a wrench in the system and see if I could mess with it. And I knew that, you know, I had accomplished so much with my photography career and I'd built this production company and like I had checked all these boxes and I still felt that yearning. So I knew I just kind of needed to listen to my intuition and say, you know, maybe this chapter Like, I think I can be done looking for what I'm looking for in my creative and photo career. I think it's time to look somewhere else. And it was a big risk. A lot of people thought I'd lost my mind. They were like, wait, you're, you're throwing your really successful career away to start an alcohol brand. Like, are you okay? A lot of people stopped talking to me for a while because they just, they could not wrap their head around it. But the best way I can sum it up is my intuition just said it's, it's the path that I needed to go down. And I, I knew 
I knew it was a big idea and I had to explore it. So that's when I went down a different path. I love it. And you're right. Everything you've said is right. The market did need a kick. It needed something fresh. Getting drunk faster is not what anybody wants. It's getting drunk nicely is what people want, or if not getting drunk at all. Where did the bravery come from? Because that, that, that you know, your friends were right. Given up this amazing gig, this incredible job to start something that, you know, you as an individual knew very little about. As a couple, I appreciate that slightly different. Where did that ferocity come from? You know, I write this weekly newsletter for founders called Founder Things. It's about founder things. And I published one this morning and it was about building with trauma and how trauma can serve you as a founder or as a builder or whatever you are, right? Again, we've been talking about these shadow pieces of ourselves and these pieces that at face value don't feel like they are of service to you, but in ways they can be. And I think that trauma for many people can instill this real resilience and fearlessness and this tolerance of risk and this drive that we can't quite describe. And again, it might not come from the greatest reasons, right? Like maybe it's this survival drive. Maybe it's this drive that you're scared you're going to be homeless if you're not working 20 hours a day. Who knows? But at the end of the day, you can wield those things in positive ways from time to time. And so I would say my upbringing and what I've been through and the loss that I've experienced has absolutely made me more tolerant of pursuing situations where I could lose everything because I've lost whatever was everything to me before Mm -hmm. and I survived. And in many ways, it took me on a path that is way more extraordinary than it would have been if I hadn't have lost those things. So in some ways, I think it was this knowledge that, hey, if I throw this away for this new thing, even if it doesn't work out, it's going to set me on a path that I might ultimately like more. And I think there's also just some indescribable intuition that sometimes you are supposed to take a path that seems kind of obscured or muddy or or might even look a little scary. For some reason, we do it anyway. And I'm not really sure where that comes from. No, it's really interesting listening to you because I asked where this ferocity, this bravery came from. And you very articulately said, once you've lost everything, you've nothing left to fear. Essentially, you boil it down. Now, if I'd have asked that to somebody else that had lost everything, they would have clung to everything they've got for fear of losing it again. And I wonder what the difference is that turns the switch on or turns the switch off. The same experiences would make somebody else risk averse, stay where I am, stay in my lane, I'm doing a really good job of this. Or actually, do you know what? It's just a gamble. It doesn't matter. It's just a gamble. And I and I love that approach, by the way, Helena, you know that. What is it about you that made you see it in that way? The only thing I can speak to with authority is more of the recent realizations that I've been having, right? Because still, there was quite a bit of unconsciousness going into a lot of those previous decisions that I made. The best way I could distill it down was just like, I had to do it. I just had to do it. I was driven. I was compelled in that direction. I can't explain it. I have more self-awareness now than I had then. And I'm going through something similar, right? Like that company, fast forward, it didn't work out. It worked out in a lot of ways, but, but ultimately it died. 
right? The company, I don't have the marriage that I had five years ago. I'm starting over in a lot of ways today. And so now I have the blessing of a lot of introspection, a lot of study. You know, I've been on a real journey of learning about psychology, why we make the decisions we do, um, developing a tremendous amount of self-awareness through meditation, through journaling, all these different things that I've picked up over the years. And with that knowledge, actually, I would say comes a little bit more of a burden of like, wow, I really do have a choice here. Like, now that I know what I know, I know that I can choose to react to something in this way or that way, or I can choose to go down a path that's a little safer, or a path that's a little harder. In some ways, that lack of knowing is such a blessing, because you can make choices and just blame it on your lack of knowing. I would say the more that I learn about myself and the more I learn about the reasoning why humanity does the things that it does and why we're wired to make the decisions that we make comes more responsibility. And so as I choose my next paths in front of me, in some ways, there's more at stake. So naivety, I think, does play a lot into making wild decisions. I get that. You know, I think that curiosity that, you know, you don't want to sound like Steve Jobs quote in here, but that curiosity, that foolishness, that what you don't know not stopping you that's really important and where are you going to go next uh, helene and what are you going to do next and how are we gonna um, i mean i i've loved watching your journey even the uncomfortable bits we've been cheering you on you know that you know we, we think the world of what you do what are we going to be cheering on next i'm really starting to reframe what i think of as next the way that I used to think about next is what's the next empire I'm going to build, right? Like what's the next massive world changing idea, whatever. I would think in big terms and I would think in conventional terms as to like why I would do that, right? Oh, I want to have an exit. I want to like build my career into something huge. I want to make a huge impact. Like, you know, nothing bad, but like a bit conventional. I have learned, again, in this kind of the removing the naivety, like life starts to take those layers off of you that protected you. I know now that even having the biggest ideas in the world, having the best ideas in the world, having all the intelligence and grit and resilience, stuff can still get taken from you. Stuff can still not work out. So for me now, I can't think of those things as, as certain things that I know I can control or, or seek or whatever. So what's next for me, I'm really starting to take things a day at a time, a month at a time. I feel very fortunate in that opportunities do present themselves to me regularly. The surface answer of your question is I'm taking a break right now. I'm writing this newsletter weekly for founders. I'm having so many conversations with founders who are going through really hard times. One of the unexpected consequences of me building my last company house really publicly and it falling apart really publicly was that I've had hundreds of founders contact me to tell me how grateful they are for my openness about it and then telling me about their issues. And so I'm learning that there's this lack of just resources for founders in terms of just feeling sat with and feeling heard and realizing that they're not the only ones struggling. That's kind of where I am right now. Just figuring out how can I be of service to people today, tomorrow, not what I'd be doing in a year, and just looking at the opportunities that come to me now and thinking more of like, truly, like, how can I be more of service 
in the here and now versus how can I wield the world to me to build something big for reasons I don't even know. That's really interesting, isn't it? When you're chasing success for success's sake, you maybe lose sight, maybe, of the joy success can bring, the impact it can have on other people in terms of encouragement and um, as a role model. Um, And maybe you lose a bit of yourself when it all goes south. Maybe you lose just a little bit of you. So this period of healing, introspection, I think it's really powerful. I think this is going to be a really, you're going to pick the camera up again, aren't you? You're going to pick the camera back up and you're going to go back to taking some photographs for a little while, aren't you? Not commercially, for love. That is what I've been doing. I've been photographing my kid and my friends and picking it back up. And that's been really fun. I mean, this podcast is a great example of kind of glossing over my career and and looking back and being like, I've done more career-wise than most people in terms of conventional things I can brag about. And that whole time, I was kind of miserable. I was thinking I should be more, do more. I wasn't enough. I was in this mindset of lack the whole time. And it wasn't a lack of gratitude. Again, it was this old wiring that I'm just not enough and I have to do more and I have to do more. And one day I will be enough. And what a tragedy that I couldn't have just enjoyed some of that more. I I didn't enjoy the journey more. And so I believe that things are brought to us to teach us lessons, right? Whether it's a, a great opportunity or whether it's a great loss. And so for me, what a lesson to take what I've been through and try to enjoy the beginnings of whatever this new chapter is, right? Whatever is going to become my next project or my next life's work or my next relationship or my next whatever to enjoy the actual journey and not worry so much about whether or not it's going to go away or when it's going to end. Like, of course it's going to end. I know that now life is chapters. So I've got to enjoy the process. Your ambition is still there, and you can see that. But the clarity of your thought and the you're on a wider focus. This is about a better you, not about a successful brand that you can sell or whatever you want to do with it. And that's really reassuring. And I think as a mentor, you offer so much. And I can't wait to watch. I mean, genuinely, I can't wait to watch. And we think of you often. Daisy and I talk of you often your kindness and your determination. Yeah. And those two things, they are secret weapons, not the seeking of success, but the lifting of others. And you're going to do, you're going to do great. You really are. And I wish you, if there's anything I can do, anything, right. Or anything we can do, you just let, you let me know. We'll do anything. Tell me just to finish off. Tell me about what does mum think? How has all this gone down with mum? That will require a completely different podcast. (laughs) Is she well? She's on her own journey. That is the best way I can sum it up. Are you able to hold her hand? Again, it's hard to, to answer that question. I will say part of my healing journey, as many's will be, is realizing that a lot of the wiring that didn't serve you was taught to you by your parents. Always. And part of that journey is realizing that your parents are not perfect 
and realizing that as you gravitate away from this wiring, they may have a hard time with that. And you will have to learn to forgive them for all of it. I've just been through an experience, not with my parents, with, with a mentor, with a friend, uh, who um, exactly that. I've changed and they kind of liked me how I was, flawed and needy as it was. And they don't like the new me. And for ages, I thought that was my fault. Oh, shit. What have I done? Nah, it's not about me. It's about them. And we are all on our own journeys and we are all intertwined. And you are going to be able to have conversations with her in five years that you can't have now. And just be patient and stick to your principles. Kindness and being able to share and lift others and resilience. It's what you do so well. Thank you. Thank you, Helena. I loved that. I really did. And um, let's do another one once your next chapter is written. Two years time, we'll do another one. We'll see where you've got to. Beautiful. I love it. Amazing. Thank you.